questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. It has been a mystery how humans subtly discovered civilization around 8000 BC. But ask indigenous people the world over, and they will state that 12,000 years ago, during a period called the Younger Dryas, another culture lived alongside them. Described as unusually tall, fair-skinned, red-haired, or blonde, these gods knew how to bend the forces of nature, enabling them to build extraordinary megalithic temples and develop a comparatively advanced civilization. After a global flood wiped out their island homelands, the remaining gods emerged as strategic locations to rebuild their former world and teach human survivors the roots of civilized society. Then they vanished. Who were these people? Where did they come from? And what did they want with us? Greetings from your host, Mel Fabregas. And if you're new to the Veritas family, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, just click on the subscribe button. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and much more. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is Freddy Silva, a best-selling author and a leading researcher of ancient civilizations, restricted history, sacred sites, and their interaction with consciousness. He has published six books in six languages, including the latest one, The Missing Lands, Uncovering Earth's Pre-Flood Civilization. He has also produced critically acclaimed documentaries and is described by one CEO as perhaps the best metaphysical speaker in the world right now. For two decades, he has been an international keynote speaker with notable appearances at international conferences, TV, and radio. He is also a documentary filmmaker, art photographer, and leads private tours to sacred sites around the world. His websites are invisibletemple.com and freddysilva.com, which are both linked on our website. Freddie Silva joins us directly from Portland, Maine. Hello, Freddie. Hello, Mel. How are you? <laughs> Pretty well. It's stopped raining. It's very nice up here. Oh, it's probably about 100 degrees here in the desert where I am, but congratulations on the missing lands. I just finished well, reading you. it today. This is your sixth book, right? Uh, it is indeed. I was hoping to write a smaller one, but uh, somehow facts take their course, and before you know it, you're 100,000 words into a project. You know, you're preaching to the choir. After I read the book, more and more we find that things are much older than we're told. But when and how did you arrive at that conclusion, Freddie? Uh, oh, I think over the course of about 20 years, and uh, I'm not the first one to say this by any means, I'm not the last one, there's a whole group of us who are adding to the um, to, to building this beast of uh, evidence to support the fact that, yes, there was someone else here living in, in the middle of the Younger Dryas period, and it's uh, even the Egyptians were very well aware of them, and uh, we keep approaching the subject from slightly different points of view and reaching very similar conclusions, which is you know, what I find really 
exciting and challenging at the same time to come up with a different angle. And uh, what I really wanted to do was to focus on the people uh, that they, they describe as the gods. Uh, no one's really done, at least to my satisfaction, uh, a good expose of who the gods were and were they linked, uh, if they were linked at all. And of course, where they lived. We, we focus so much on Atlantis and Lemuria and over 10,000 books have been written on the subject. But, you know, have we blindsided ourselves to basically limiting uh, the fact that these people lived on two islands that are now sunk? Or did they live somewhere else? Were there more islands where they lived? Were there more territories where they kept themselves to themselves? And, and that's really what became the, uh, the focus of the project. And it really just grew from that, from the available evidence. There's no doubt in my mind that our history has been heavily edited, and you probably have come to that conclusion too. But we keep finding old structures. And in fact, just a few days ago, I saw an article of what seemed to be atomic bunkers built 2,400 years ago in India with perfect cuts in the rock, which obviously utilized extremely advanced technology. But the first thought that came to mind, Freddie, to most people, especially the scientific community, I think, it was virtually impossible to build such a bunch of rock cuts, so fine and perfectly made. And then people say, it must have been aliens. Why do we perpetuate that notion so much? Why couldn't we just say, it's another humanoid who lived during that time and was smart enough to do it? And perhaps the, the knowledge disappeared after the cataclysm. I'm glad you took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, this whole ancient alien thing, you know, and, and I, I accept their point of view. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a valid point of view from their angle. But I have to say that humans are also quite clever, and also there were humanoids here who are also cleverer than hunter gatherers. And uh, I think before we start jumping to a conclusion that it's someone off planet uh, for which there's very little evidence to suggest that there were, uh, because the people that I, I keep talking to in indigenous cultures, they describe these people as being humanoid and yet not quite human, but they were very comfortable with them. And uh, what really differentiated them from local people was the fact that they were much taller, uh, not giantesque so much. I mean, they were anywhere between four and uh, four feet taller than the um, regular human, uh, just as like, you know, I'm considered the giant in Peru, for example, I'm six foot five. Um, but they were also red haired, uh, sometimes blonde. They were blue or green-eyed. They had beards in places where men are genetically incapable of growing beards. Uh, and uh, they're all white-skinned, which is very unusual in places like China or Polynesia or Central America. So, But overall, the uh, gods were, uh, the people were very comfortable with them. So I, my first inclination is to sort of dismiss the whole uh, alien thing, unless, of course, we are dealing with people who had the ability to travel from here to somewhere else. Uh, and still, in a matter of speaking, look like us. And um, the Hopi actually tend to agree with that uh, concept. And it's something that you also find in um, uh, Egyptian texts. You also find these in the Tamil texts. Uh, and they suggest that there was somehow a time when people could go to and from this world and some other location uh, of this planet. And I'm sure we'll get to this later on in the conversation. Um, and the name of Ryan keeps popping up all over the place in the uh, in the research so but I, I, I keep I keep coming back to the point that 
with the, these people were very much uh, connected to us in some way, in some genetic way. And eventually they did interbreed with humans because they described themselves as being half human, half divine. And they still went on practicing extraordinary things. Um, as you mentioned, uh, they had the incredible ability to shape stone as though you're making it molten or that they were making a loaf of bread. Uh, it was that easy for them. So I do think that uh, physical people, human people, uh, were able to achieve extraordinary things using a kind of natural law and a natural science that we've completely forgotten. And what I'm going to ask you sounds a little bit conspiratorial, but I wonder if the powers that want to be perpetuate this idea. And again, I'm not criticizing ancient alien fans, but I wonder, Occam's Razor tells me, Look at the easiest way, at the simplest way. If right now there's a cataclysm and you and I were to to survive, you know, maybe you can carry on the knowledge that we have before. I'm not as smart as you are, but could we actually revive the entire uh, the computer world, the industry, and so we probably couldn't do that. But why do we have to say, oh, somebody from another planet must have done it because we are incapable? Well, exactly. I mean, the, the strongest amongst us or the wisest amongst us would probably be put in this safe haven, and uh, they basically would form the seeds of uh, a new civilization based on uh, whoever survives. Now, I think this would have been true 12,000 years ago, too, uh, using the simplest uh, logical argument. Uh, they face, and, and from all the texts that I've read so far, uh, it's quite clear that the these gods were faced with exactly the same problem. Uh, their lands were um, they, they seem to have lived somewhere different from humans. They didn't keep in touch with humans as much as we'd like to believe. They sometimes uh, would uh, communicate with us via uh, intermediaries, with messengers. Uh, they used to call them watchers, uh, who always get a bad rap, by the way. Uh, and I've tried to rehabilitate them in my book uh, because uh, it was only a few of them that went a little astray. The other ones were actually very useful people. Um, they basically kept themselves to themselves. And uh, it was only because of the first cataclysm that began the younger Dryas back in 10,800 BC, they kind of forced them to go more towards the continental areas and start rebuilding the former world of the gods, as they called it. Uh, and then after that, they basically were faced with the same problem a thousand years later uh, at the end of the Younger Dryas when rising sea levels, the disintegrating comet finally took out all of their homes and um, the survivors were faced with the option of, well, we have to st uh, start from scratch. There's not enough of us left to maintain our civilization. The only way we can do it is to teach uh, hunter-gatherers the accoutrements of civilization. And that's, of course, the exact moment that we find civilization accidentally and suddenly happening in different parts of the world um, and coincidentally at the same places that where all these stories of the gods come from. So I think there was that a wonderful moment in time where these people were forced to intermingle with humans and uh, human civilization took on a completely different turn. Um, the same would be true today. I think that if we came from, let's say, let, let's just say for the sake of argument, uh, in, in the Western world, and I'm being very simplistic here, I don't want to offend anybody. Uh, you know, if, if we, let's say in America, uh, had groups of people who had to go and say, go to South America and uh, restart the population there, I'm sure 
sure that uh, a local population would essentially treat us as being somewhat superior. Uh, not that we go in there with that idea in mind, but th- we would be doing exactly the same thing that uh, these people had been faced with 12,000 years ago without, a, uh, without doubt. Where do you think these beings came from? If I lived in an unexplored and un- uncorrupted region of Earth, societal-wise, and, and bumped into humans, I wouldn't tell them where I'm from. I wouldn't give them my address. I would probably point at a distant star and say, oh, actually, I came from there, so they're not looking for me. Well, that's a very good point. And uh, given the track record of humans, I wouldn't want to give away my address either. Um, but here's the fun part. And this is what I began to really ask in, uh, in earnest, because so much information that comes to us from legend or folklore or myth, uh, which are wonderful vessels for carrying information, uh, they're theatrical devices that help you to basically retell a story over over time without losing the narrative and um, a lot of this is also uh, involves metaphor and uh, you have to work for the metaphors to get to the answer and I first began to come across this connection with Orion uh, Orion always keeps popping up or the belt stars of Orion uh, we already know that there are many monuments here on the face of the earth that mirror uh, the belt stars of Orion and they point to a specific date of about 10,400 BC um, but it It never occurred to me that perhaps the connection would actually be uh, physical and uh, literal. So I began to look into the uh, stories of the the Hopi, the Zuni. I will go to Central America, uh, uh, Egypt. I've been in the Middle East, uh, in Polynesia. And the more I began to compile all of these stories, the more I began to realize that these people were actually saying that they had had physical contact with these people and they undoubtedly came from the belt stars of Orion or uh, the belt stars of Orion somehow form some kind of a a reed that connects to the earth via some kind of portal from which people can actually traverse the entire universe and uh, the, the, in, in the Maya world in Central America and even before that because the Maya are actually comparatively new uh, compared to their progenitors they talked about not just the bell stars of Orion being central to the homeland of the gods but also the central area, the triangular area which is actually pinpointed by the um, nebula M42 so it seems to be this sort of re- regenerative part of the universe there seems to be a point of contact for people going to and fro using a kind of technology we just do not have. Uh, and uh, when I got to New Zealand and spoke to one of their original people who were the Waitaha, who hardly anyone has ever heard of outside of New Zealand, uh, predate the Maori by thousands of years, they have just published their oral traditions. And it blew my mind to understand that even today, uh, the uh, 9,000 or so remaining people of that tribe, they still describe coming into contact with their original gods, who, again, they treated uh, like, you know, you and I would meet each other at the pub and give each other a hug. They just described as being very intelligent people that came from somewhere else, uh, no sense of self-importance. The only difference being that these people knew a lot more about the mechanics of nature, about navigation, about the stars, uh, about mathematics. And over time, uh, this group of people called the Urukehu, which basically means the red-haired people, they would give the tribe, they would give the Waitaha wisdom keepers a little bit of knowledge, which went into this basket, um, which they basically would use as a symbol for containing the knowledge of the tribe. And they said, under no uncertain terms, that we 
had physical direct contact with these people because they used to come to our villages and to the point where the three central groups of the Waitaha culture are actually based upon one of the three, um, excuse me, uh, each of the three belt stars of Orion. So for them, it was not symbolic. It was actual a matter-of-fact connection. It was a physical connection. Uh, and it completely mirrors what the Hopis say as well, that over the course of thousands of years, they have had direct contact with people that um, are either coming directly from Orion or they actually associated with Sirius as well. So I'm, I mean, and again, it's it's uh, the, the idea of writing these books is not putting my idea or my beliefs into any of this. I like to let the indigenous people tell their story. I rather hear it from people who are closer to the events than we are today, because I find their stories so much more compelling. Uh, and, you know, why would they lie about this? Why would they make this up? And if you really think about it, if they were that backward, how could they fabricate such incredible stories to begin with? Uh, so I find their stories very compelling. Uh, and the big question question now is, of course, uh, how did these people get uh, to and from their point of origin in this constellation all the way down here and back again uh, in the blink of an eye? You mentioned Sirius. Sirius B, what's your take on the Dogon tribe that knew of Sirius B before modern man discovered it? Well, it's interesting. There's been a if you follow certain uh, books and certain websites like Wikipedia, there's a lot of uh, um, disinformation and contradiction going on. Um, I'm familiar with Robert Temple's book, which is also partly based on an original anthropological um, uh, discussion that was done by French historians when they lived among the Dogon. And again, I find their accounts quite compelling. Uh, I can't prove it one way or the other, but I do find the stories of the Dogon quite compelling simply because they had accumulated a lot of the information from a nearby culture called the Egyptians. And uh, one of their central figures was a, a, a god, a man called the Nomos, who was uh, depicted as half man, half fish, which incidentally just happens to be exactly the same depiction by the Mesopotamian people of the Anunnaki, which are also given a very bad rap and uh, um, and terribly so because they really are, were actually very enlightened people. Um, the Anunnaki also were depicted as half man, half fish simply because they were a seafaring people. Uh, they came from an island somewhere in the middle of the Indian Ocean, which has now disappeared. So from that point of view, the idea that uh, the Dogon would have inherited this star knowledge from a fish man who is related to the Mesopotamian gods who were here before the flood, uh, I find that rather a compelling story. Uh, they would have obviously shared their information about the skies with the Dogon uh, for, for whatever reason. And the Dogon would, would maintain this net culture in order to point to the fact that some of their wisdom comes from uh, the star people, uh, again, as anyone in the southwest of America would agree. Well, back to the Dogon. I don't want to stay with the Dogon all the time, but I just find it fascinating. I had a conversation with them years ago, and I remember when they were talking about how they became a breakaway civilization of Egypt. Weren't they the priests of Egypt, and perhaps they were persecuted, and they held a lot of the knowledge and through initiation, that's how they disseminate that information today. 
Uh, there is that uh, that possibility, yes, because uh, we're talking we're now talking in historical times, uh, particularly around the time when the Syrians invaded Egypt and everybody had to go underground. Uh, right. You had to survive to live for another day, and uh, it wasn't just uh, them; it was also the Tuareg, uh, who another nomadic culture in uh, northern Sahara. They also have a lot of information which I've just come across. Um, ironically, because I was studying about the giant people in Sardinia from where I've just come back from, and that they too have a lot of information concerning this race of unusual people, uh, described in exactly the same way as the Dogon, and uh, the Tuareg themselves seem to be echoing a lot of the traditions of the priestly caste of Egypt. Again, uh, if you have something that's so important as uh, ancient information, um, just like a bank account, if you're going to be threatened with certain death, you'd want to split up your assets and make sure they go to different parts of the world so that the information survives. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a, a wonderful echo of this in Northern Europe uh, when Catholicism wiped out the uh, Gnostic Christians and the Celtic church realized that they were very connected to the Gnostic Christians in so many ways. And they decided in the fourth century AD to go out en masse and preach across different parts of Europe. Uh, before the Catholic Church had a chance to completely rewrite the story. So I find a lot of parallels there between the, uh, the Tuareg and the Dogon as well. In all your years of research, do you think that what caused civilization to almost perish was man-made or was it natural? Oh, uh, this is a very interesting point because we, you know, if you look at it from the geological point of view, everything is based on nature. And yes, that is uh, absolutely true. I think that there's a mechanism behind nature that uh, things are periodic and they're cyclical and they're repetitive. And uh, every culture on the face of the earth, except for the Western, except this is as fact, uh, everything is, it goes around in cycles and is bound to repeat itself. Uh, this is one of the reasons why people like the Maya and their... Um, progenitors uh, were engaged in designing calendars that mapped 140,000 years of time. Now, you don't need a calendar that of that length when, A, you're just growing crops, and two, you only have a 60-year lifespan. It serves no purpose at all except to show off or to track long periods of time. So it seems that uh, they were tracking something very, very much bigger, and they were able to actually predict when these things happened. Now, um, to be prepared is to basically well to be forewarned is to be prepared uh, they accepted their fate on earth and they recognized that these things these tragedies and catastrophes happen quite periodically some people will die and some will survive and that's what happens um, they accepted it as a matter of fact and they continued civilization after everything collapsed now here's the fun part um, in the middle of the book of Enoch which I, I'm not sure how many people have actually read this properly uh, especially the original Ethiopian version and there's a a Czech version as well, which is also very enlightening. Uh, there are wonderful um, phrases in this book that really describe what was really going on with the lords of Anu, uh, essentially the Anunnaki, um, which literally means the people of Anu. Um, the lords of Anu uh, have actually ha described how they were in complete control of the laws of nature. They had mastered the uh, mechanics uh, of life, and they could bend things at will. Uh, and usually for, for good reason. Um, and they basically were saying to Enoch, who wrote down the story, who, who by the way, was a, uh, is the same character as a Mesopotamian writer whose name was Emed Owano. Uh, so this is a Hebrewization of an original text. 
so this writer, and we'll call him Enoch for now because that's the most popular name, he was actually writing down how the Lord of Anu describes uh, how the um, the small group of renegade watchers defied his authority and they began to intermingle with human women. They began to teach uncivilized humans the art of warfare and other things that undeveloped people shouldn't really have. Uh, that's the dark part of the story and it was a, a small number of these people that went astray and we don't know why. And the Lord Honor said, you know, things have gotten so out of control uh, um, down on the uh, the plains of the earth uh, and that, that we literally have to reset the uh, the whole thing. We have to press the reset switch uh, and by uh, we know that there are asteroids coming towards the earth uh, it's a cyclical thing that happens where the earth goes through this field of debris twice a year in fact we still do it now and um, we've actually manufactured using our will to bend some of those rocks onto the path of the earth and it will cause a major catastrophe and that's when we have the flood unleashed uh, because the most of the uh, meteorites hit very deep pockets of water uh, they hit uh, they hit the uh, deepest trenches on Earth, and uh, that's what caused tidal waves that breached the Himalaya. Now, we're talking over two miles high tidal waves, and uh, having spoken to a ballistics expert at Los Alamos, uh, I can quite confidently say that it's absolutely possible to achieve a tsunami that high when you have the right size of rock hitting the right portion of the uh, ocean, and the kinetic energy will basically create a plume of water three miles high, and that will transfer itself to a coastal region and will generate waves as equally as high as the original uh, plume from the descending meteorite. So these stories were uh, not just uh, stories, they were eyewitness accounts. Uh, and I believe that um, uh, th these people were, were basically surviving to tell the tale to another day. Very interesting. I'm just thinking of the Himalayas. And could Lake Titicaca have been filled because of this event? It's been a matter of some debate because Lake Titicaca is still partly salted, uh, as is Lake Eyre in Australia, and as is the Great Salt Lake in North America. Um, and it's always—I mean, geologists are very conservative, and I—you know—you have to understand their point of view. They don't want to be um, laughed at or ridiculed. They want to keep publishing. There's not much money to go around. There aren't many university places to go around. But um, there's a very famous geologist that uh, works with ancient. Uh, uh, systems of knowledge, whose name I won't mention on air for now, but I'm sure everyone knows who it is. And uh, it would be a know, shock like, to me if you know what I mean. It would be a shock if uh, <laughs> if we knew who it was. Um, we were having a quiet little uh, drink, uh, he and I, and uh, you know, after record, he'd say, you know, most uh, most geologists will agree that uh, understanding of geology is an educated guess because we have been hit with uh, 13 known catastrophes since the end of the Younger Dryas. And uh, each time that happens, the earth is reshaped very radically. So because of erosion, because of sediment buildup, we only have a, uh, an, un, an, an educated guess as to what the earth used to look like. And uh, th what uh, was being said was that uh, oh, hang on a second. I've just lost the. I've just lost the original plot of the uh, of the story. What was the what was the question? Well, it would be a shock to me. You were having a drink about before 
Uh, before that, Himalayas, and then oh, about it the, about the Titicaca. Sauce. Yes. Okay. Sorry about this. I'm, I'm still a bit jet lagged. Apologies to everybody. Um, yes. Uh, and we were discussing the idea of uh, saltwater intrusion, and it turns out uh, he pointed me to a, a paper that was written about the Great Salt Lake, uh, which I've actually referenced in my book, uh, because the Great Salt Lake, uh, the argument goes, or the conventional argument goes, that uh, the, the salt buildup comes from the leaching of, uh, you know, salts which appear in the uh, soil naturally. The problem is that uh, the salt contained in the Great Salt Lake is actually sea salt. And the period in which this intrusion took place is around about the time when the uh, tidal waves that caused the Great Flood at the end of the Younger Dryas appear to have crossed the uh, Rockies and the Cascades. So that's a huge piece of evidence to suggest that if these uh, waves were as high as the people that survived claimed they were, then yes, the waves would have crossed North America. Yes, they would have crossed the Andes. And there are plenty of uh, eyewitness uh, legends that describe the the mountains collapsing in the blink of an eye, waves crossing the Andes, uh, reaching higher and higher towards the uh, peaks of mountains. And that's not exactly a, a small mountain range either. So I suspect that what we're looking at here may not just be continental uplift, it may also be salt water intrusion from tidal waves because the same thing is found also in the Caspian Sea, which is 500 miles to the ocean, um, and also several lakes around the Mount Ararat region, which of course is the focus of uh, Noah's Ark. Uh, so taken together, I think that there's a good evidence and a good theory to support the alternative uh, idea that perhaps all of this saltwater intrusion actually came from tidal waves. Well, let's not forget also all the undersea structures that some people are finding. Your take on the Yonaguni pyramids or structures, I know Graham Hancock believes they are. The other geologist says they're, they're uh, naturally made. Where do you stand? I, um, I like to look at geology because it's the first form that you look at when trying to understand these places. Uh, uh, I'm an amateur geologist. I am not as uh, robust as uh, Robert Schock, obviously. Uh, so I do tend to listen to what they have to say. And I, um, I do agree on one level with, uh, with his uh, opinion that there uh, you know, nature can do extraordinary things uh, given the right geology, given the right weathering and the right pressure. Uh, there are places here in Maine which I go uh, for a walk in the woods, and I swear, if I didn't know any better, it looks like the wall of a citadel. Uh, but it's just granite and a certain type of granite that creates these near perfect uh, 90 degree splits uh, on rock where you have uh, temperature variations uh, of the extremes that we have in this part of the world. Uh, having said that, uh, I'm looking at Yoganuni and I'm looking at um, things which I've found above the water, which uh, are not far away in Taiwan. And this looks more like a natural mound that has been artificially sculpted because there are too many roads, too many steps, too many alignments to solar and lunar positions. And also the mound itself uh, would have marked the Tropic of Cancer in that particular era. So that's not an accident, uh, or at least it will be too much of a coincidence to say that. So it's not unusual for people in the old days, and this happens in New Zealand as well, I've noticed, to take natural forms which suggest something like a pyramid or a sacred site, and then humans will go there and you know augment 
augment it by carving things because half of the work has already been done for you. So I would suggest, I would put forward the idea that it, it may have been a natural mound which which consisted of just amount, the right amount of um, weathering that suggested something to the people that lived there uh, that this could actually be reshaped with, uh, with a great amount of ease. Uh, it's only compressed sandstone. It's not exceptionally hard rock. Uh, and they basically uh, manufactured it to be a kind of um, intihuatana, you know, like a, a one of those stones that you see in the temples in Peru that uh, obviously look like they're uh, the tops of um, the summits of mountains, and yet they've been reshaped by human hands to, you know, look at Orion, at Sirius, at the sunsets and solstices and the equinox and the moon rises and sets. So I'm kind of taking the, the bigger picture here uh, by suggesting that it's partly natural and it's partly man-made. I think that's a very sensible and logical explanation, but would it be safe to say that this was, say, carved at one point when that area of the world was above water? Uh, absolutely, because that's the only way you can do it. And it still looks like it's carved to this very day. I mean, there are steps there which uh, obviously cannot be made by uh, by nature. I mean, uh, nature does not make staircases. It's just not possible. Uh, it does not align things deliberately to, um, to the stellar events. So, yes, I would say that at one point, given the rise in sea level, which is about 140 feet, uh, it would have made a wonderful little mound in the middle of the ocean. And we here in so many cultures the concept of ancient cultures creating these mounds um, which represent for them the starting point of their civilization uh, we had another one in egypt in the middle of the nile uh, doesn't exist today it's called yunu um, some people call it on or heliopolis and it's now a rubbish strewn suburb in cairo but back in the day, uh, when the Nile used to flood uh, and used to bend closer to Yunu, that also formed a natural mound, which is artificially shaped, and there's a temple put on top of it. And it literally represented the primordial mound, the, the representation of how life and knowledge and civilization grows out of a sea of mud. And from that, you establish your primordial mound upon which you put the entire knowledge of the gods. And uh, they're like focal points. They're like nature of the earth and it's from those navels uh, from which civilization um, flows outwards like ripples and Yonaguni would have been uh, in the same situation it would have formed the pivotal moment it would have formed a primordial mound around which we have a lot of ancient cultures for example we have the greatest concentrations of uh, dolmens anywhere in the world in the Korean Peninsula which is just down the road um, Geographically, from Yoganumi, we have Taiwan, which is one of the original islands of the gods. We have Japan and its culture, which goes back before the flood. Um, we have, uh, again, and, and all the islands around Yoganumi, which, of course, used to be much bigger before the sea level rose. So, in a way, you're actually probably looking at one of the original primordial mounds in that particular part of the world. When you were saying the reset button, I was thinking of the dog shaking its fleas shaking the tree. <laughs> if these events were natural, uh, perhaps they happened more than once in our past, could we look at ice cores, ice core samples and, and more or less predict when the next one may happen? 
Well, the, uh, what's happening is that uh, the dating of the younger dries first came up because there was a big level of soot that was found in one of the Greenland ice cores, and it was uh, tentatively dated to 9,703 BC. Uh, that's pretty accurate. And in fact, it's only 100 years off from what the um, the Itza, who were the pre- progenitors of the Maya, who escaped a sinking continent in the middle of the Atlantic to found the Maya civilization, uh, in that their original work, which is the Chilambalam, uh, they actually state 9,600 BC. So it's not that far off, which just happens to be the date that the priests in Egypt at the Academy of Saïs uh, gave to Solon, the uh, Greek um, what would you call him? He was a scholar living in uh, in Saïs at the time, and it was his story that ends up on the desk of uh, Plato. So all of these people are not far off. Um, the the pr- the predictive element is the tough part because calendars have moved quite a bit over twelve thousand years. Uh, not too long ago, we even had to add fourteen days to the European calendar to uh, align the fact that everything was out of kilter by then. Uh, even the Chinese added five days. In 2600 BC because nothing aligned anymore. Um, so the only way we have of predicting uh, when the next one's going to be are the Yugas of uh, southern India and of course the uh, the Mayan calendars which of course everyone panicked about 21, uh, sorry 2012 Um I, I have some very good Maya teachers who are exceptional people, and um, very little is published. It's all oral tradition, and they laughed uh, when the people were going ape about the end of the world in 2012. It was it was a bit like looking at a Volkswagen engine reaching 999,000 miles and watching the odometer go to zero, and the car still works. Uh, you know, the engine's still ticking away. Um, what they were saying is that we are 20, uh, 2012 was actually a pivotal moment um we have a window of opportunity uh, 2012 is essentially a, a moment in the middle of this window which stretches 60 years so we've been in this change now for oh, 38 years and we have another sort of 26 years to go so anywhere between uh, all the way up to 2042 we still are in this window of big changes and there's no doubt that we are in the middle of changes Every indigenous culture is talking about it. Every indigenous culture has warned us about this. And they've also mentioned uh, in no uncertain terms that the close of each cycle is accompanied by enormous uh, cataclysms, uh, huge changes in society, and um, uh, mass displacement of people. What amazes me about all these uh, synchronicities is that NASA and other space agencies are also becoming almost paranoid about near-Earth objects. There isn't a week that goes by without them issuing yet another press release. In fact, one just came out last week about another near-Earth asteroid. Uh, There are mathematicians who also have written papers about the torrid meteor shower through which we go through twice a year. And um, specifically around November, uh, and June, we, the Earth goes through a two-week period we are, where we are bombarded with this field of debris from a broken comet. And uh, 
around certain times, we are hit with big chunks of this. And uh, there is, uh, 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 it's, it's Kluber Napier, their names. I don't know their first names. They're astrophysicists. They've actually calculated that somewhere around the third decade of this century, uh, we are staring at uh, annihilation in the face. And they're not being alarmist. They're just being mathematicians. They're saying there's a huge chance that the chunks that go around this debris field uh, that behave like a big donut, the Earth happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time every few thousand of years. And the next big moment that they've calculated will be somewhere between 20, uh, 2030 and 2040, which is exactly uh, when the uh, the Maya calendar say, it says, well, that's your last window of opportunity. And these windows of opportunity are given to us to prepare so that the few that uh, will survive these cataclysms will then fa- uh, form the seeds of the new civilization. It, it's as though we've been here before again and again. Uh, and again, it's not to be alarmist, it's to be prepared and to understand that we signed up for this uh, wonderful ride. The trick is, how are you going to ride the uh, this wave, and I mean a wave, uh, with elegance? How are you going to prepare and also do it with elegance? That's the big question. You mentioned an island in the middle of the Atlantic, and a thought came to mind, could this island had been Atlantis, and, and these people spread out, knowing what was coming, and some went to Egypt, and some went to Mexico, Egipto, Mexico, rhymes. Some went to Meso and South America, and that's why we see all these, all of a sudden, these structures that are similar. And there's a huge overlapping of uh, stories here. Uh, the Egyptian uh, building texts are very clear that uh, these people came from um, two directions. One was from somewhere in the Indian Ocean, and yet there's this other unspecified location called the Island of the Egg. Uh, the thing that links the stories together is the fact that they called these people uh, the Shining Ones. It was a kind of um, a, a physical description. It was uh, two reasons. There was uh, They kept anointing themselves with oil as though they f- these people found it very difficult to be here on earth and the light of the sun somehow uh, was not kind to their skin and the fact that there were uh, light-skinned pale or white people uh, which is uh, described all around the world, suggests that uh, they had a problem uh, with um, the skin and the sunlight. And that's why they were called the shining ones, because of the oil on the skin. But they were also shining because of the amount of illumination that they carried in terms of knowledge. So it was also a kind of metaphor for who they were. And the the title of office that they carried was the people of the serpent. Now... This is very helpful because you find this title all around the world. It's the one thing that connects all of these gods together, whether you're in the Pacific, in the Middle East, in Polynesia, in South America, Central America, uh, the Iberian Peninsula. In fact, where I was born in Portugal, there's a hill there uh, at whose foot I was uh, born where these people actually survived a sinking of a continent in the middle of the Atlantic, and they were called the people of the serpent. Uh, I thought that was just a a one-off until my good friend, the uh, Maya teacher, Miguel Vergara, said to me, uh, actually, that's what we call the people called the Its, who came from this sinking island in the middle of the Atlantic called Atl. 
they were uh, they, they, they didn't use many vowels in names in those days. Uh, Atl, of course, becomes the Aztec Atitlan, and of course, it goes into Europe as Atlantis. Uh, and they said that the, the traditions claimed that these people had survived one catastrophe, which began the Younger Dryas, and then they did not fare much better a thousand years later when a second catastrophe wiped off the uh, the continent for good. And they described having hopped from island to island, the remains of other larger islands in the middle of the Atlantic, uh, all the way to Yucatan. So there wasn't just one major island in the middle of the Atlantic. There were actually several. And uh, accounts from the Pacific will back this up, saying that whatever went down also had a opposite effect because lands also went up. So where there was the Sahara, for example, there were also islands there. The Sahara uh, basically was created because of the tilting uh, of the earth and the tilting of the landmass. Uh, there used to be a great big ocean there, and uh, that entire seri- uh, section uh, went into the Atlantic, and it became a desert. In fact, if you go and drive three hours west of Cairo, you will still see the remaining uh, portion of that salt water area, uh, which, be, again, would have been part of the Atlantic back then. It's still at the oasis at Siwa. Uh, so it's amazing to find this salt water remnant of the Atlantic in the middle of the, uh, the desert. Uh, and again, their point was that it's very hard to actually imagine what the earth looked like before the flood took over. Uh, it requires a huge leap of imagination, but uh, there were definitely several islands in the middle of the Atlantic for certain. It's interesting that when you say something, I have a note or a question that I wanted to ask you later that you've answered already. I was thinking of the Sahara, how all that area, to me, something tells me if this was the cradle of civilization around that area. And there's just sand, as if you see in a beach. Something tells me that water was flowing around that area, and you just answer the question. Uh, absolutely. In fact, there are still cave drawings in the middle of, I think it's Chad, if I'm not mistaken, or Mali, which shows swimmers uh, and uh, aquatic animals. So the whole place was a very fertile area. Uh, I've actually driven through there. It's the most miraculous place. Uh, there are these incredible mushroom columns of salt and crystal. And it's quite clear that uh, the whole of that area emptied very, very quickly. And uh, Roman commentators in the historical era who are compiling the information about the earth uh, back in uh, ooh, uh, um, the first century BC, they were compiling these from surviving information from the Egyptians. And their accounts are very astonishing. They said that this stuff happened in the blink of an eye, literally overnight in some cases, where parts of uh, the area around Morocco, the mountains collapsed, and the entire contents of the ocean that used to be in the Sahara emptied westwards into the Atlantic, which, of course, again, helped the drowning of Atlantis because the sea literally rose in the blink of an eye. I mean, geologically speaking, uh, it may have taken as much as three weeks for the sea level to rise 140 feet. So we're looking at a huge destruction, a huge displacement of people, of societies, and of civilization. And uh, the Egyptians, yet again, come to our help and say, yeah, the, the influence of Atlantis wasn't just in the middle of the Atlantic. They had a the much wider footprints. They were in the Iberian Peninsula. They were also present in the Mediterranean. And uh, I actually believe, having just come back from Sardinia, that one of the outposts was in Sardinia. And they do describe people there as having been associated with Orion. They were much taller than ordinary humans. They were red-haired. And uh, they seemed to possess the power of, um, of a 
gravity. They were able to move rocks uh, as though you and I were lifting a book. Um, so there's something about that, uh, the Sardinia uh, island, which is a very, very big island, by the way. And if you happen to just take down the sea level by about ooh, 30 feet, which is not that much, uh, you connect it to another island called Corsica. And that forms quite a substantial landmass in the middle of the Mediterranean. So again, we have to really use our imagination to understand what uh, all of this looked like before the flood came. And by the way, I'm heading to Morocco in the next uh, few days. Uh, oh, you did, lucky bugger. <laughs> never been. But you mentioned, that, did I read that in your book, that perhaps this was the epicenter, the cradle of civilization and not north? Um, the sort of beginning of everything, that the, the central point of civilization is always the big question. Was there just one center? Did everything emerge from one particular egg? Uh, it's such a hard question to answer because uh, we have to really look back uh, tens of thousands of years. And uh, having said that, the Sumerian king list uh, tracks 140,000 dynasties uh, going back as that far. So uh, these people were not uncomfortable with long periods of time. The problem is it's very, very hard to prove uh, where the original center was. Um, what I've tried to do in the, um, in the missing lands is to actually look at the traditions and find out how can we try and sort of hone in on where this missing place was. And um, you kind of focus on Atlantis and Lemuria and go from there and see if, you know, if that makes any sense. And it does, because you see the same story played out in Iberia, in the Yucatan, and also throughout the Pacific. But here's the fun part. The more you go into some very obscure cultures, the more you find out that actually there may have been as much as seven seed cultures, and they're all connected to each other. Uh, this was a unique brother and sisterhood that spanned the world. They lived quite by themselves, usually on islands uh, or in very remote locations that didn't seem to connect with humans in any way, shape, or form, uh, probably because they didn't want to interfere with the natural development of a, uh, a, you know, a less developed uh, culture or race. Um, and there were the if you take just the uh, the numerical relationship between these gods um, the lords of Anu were founded on a group of seven people who ha also had a group of seven uh, others so there's 49 people altogether uh, working in seven groups and I basically figured well If each group had a dominion over each part of the globe, uh, there would have been seven locations. And uh, the more I began to look into this, the more I realized that actually there were seven locations. And uh, there was one particular citadel that was, of course, at Lake Titicaca, uh, which is another cradle of civilization, uh, Tiwanaku and uh, Pumapunku, of course, uh, being two temples which have been conservatively dated at 15,000 B.C., um, There was one archaeologist that, that lived 48 years there uh, to whom we should all be grateful. And uh, Arthur Poznanski basically uh, discovered so much of that site by literally digging it by hand. And he said that there's a, a section there which is even older. It may be as much as 32,000 BC because some of its temples are misaligned by several degrees as though they're looking at a different part of the sky. Um, the uh, South Americans and the Central Americans also discussed 
the fact that uh, when the Younger Dryas uh, finally closed, they came from other sinking lands in the middle of the uh, the Pacific. Uh, one of them was called Amul, and uh, the Hopi called as Muya. So we're obviously uh, talking about the same place. But they seem to describe it not somewhere way off in the Indian Ocean, as many people have put it there, but also somewhere in the uh, closer to the uh, California coast and north of the Easter Island. Uh, if you talk to the people in the middle of the Polynesia, they'll start describing these lands in different uh, by different names, which makes it really confusing. Uh, so the biggest uh, 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 finds uh, that came across my table was. Uh, a wisdom keeper in the Cook Islands, in a specific island called Tongareva. And he's the last of his kind. Uh, kind of sad, really. And I'm very privileged that he was able to talk to me in the most expensive phone call of my life, uh, for which I'm eternally grateful. And he was actually describing a completely missing land in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And uh, he began to tell me about the voyages of a people that settled there who are very different from Polynesians, uh, white-skinned, tall people, red-haired and blonde, called the Tupanaki. And I said, that sounds very much like the people that I know. And I said, yes, you would call them the Anunnaki, Anunnaki. or the Anunnagi, as they were called in India. They were called literally the people of the serpent. Uh, and they came originally, uh, or, sorry, they, they settled in uh, Tupanaki uh, Islands in the middle of the Cook Island group uh, around about 3000 BC, uh, to which I was yeah, express my dismay because this is not the period of time that I'm looking at. So Teotokai Andrew, who is the last remaining wisdom keeper of the Cook Islands, he was explaining to me how the um, Tupanaki or the Anunnaki had been in uh, the Cook Islands in 3000 BC. So I was a bit disappointed because that wasn't exactly the era I was looking at. And he said, no, 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 they've been coming here since before that time. Uh, they were making the journey across the Indian Ocean and into the Pacific long before that. And uh, their original homeland was a circular island with canals. And um, it's uh, located, and you won't find it, he said, because it's located where today's Arabian Peninsula now exists. So the island went down and the Arabian Peninsula went up in its state. And of course, um, he's, I, I'd say he's absolutely right, because that's where another big desert is today. Um, it has been suggested by a number of scholars over the last 200 years that uh, the Anunnaki lived, again, in a remote location uh, with um, very tall mountains, uh, with cedar trees. And there's nothing like that uh, that resembles the Middle East. Uh, it's been speculated that they actually lived up uh, towards the Mount Ararat region, uh, which back then would have resembled a kind of island because the lakes around there were huge. Uh, still, uh, there is a suggestion that somewhere in the uh, eastern Arabian Peninsula, there is a kind of a geography that kind of fits that uh, um, that description. But uh, one of the pieces of evidence that really helps to support Teotokai's uh, idea, and I, and I don't uh, dismiss him. In fact, I, I found it to be extremely cooperative because he says it's about time that someone understood the uh, history of my nation. Uh, you know, we're all basically going under sea level. Uh, why would I make this stuff up? And he's even got the, um, you know, four. 44 generations of uh, leaders uh, that he's actually written down. So this story goes back thousands of years into their history. And um, 
uh, I, I was looking at the sort of the geology of the region and uh, came across a papyrus that was uh, esconded up to uh, Leningrad. And uh, I think it's papyrus 1115, if I'm not mistaken. And it describes the voyage of a, uh, an Egyptian uh, man who goes down the Red Sea into what seems like the Indian Ocean. And he is shipwrecked. All hands are lost, except, of course, for the uh, one person who is the narrator of the story. And uh, he shipwrecks on an island in the middle of nowhere, and he takes it to be uninhabited until a few days later when he finally meets someone who turns out to be the ruler of the island. Now, this uh, ruler was very nice to him, and uh, he eventually says, look, uh, this is the last time you're going to see this island, so we're going to give you a ship and a bottle of wine and send you back to Egypt because um, the sea level is rising, and soon the island will be no more. And I'm thinking, ooh, this is very meaty because we're not only describing rise in sea level, but the fact that uh, they actually know that their island is facing total extinction. The thing that gives away the uh, connection to the Anunnaki is the fact that this uh, sailor describes the leader of this island as a serpent with blue eyes and a beard. And, of course, the only way that that makes any sense is, is that he's describing one of the people of the serpents, who, of course, is the title of office of the Anunnaki. So between these two uh, stories, one is an actual description of a people and their traditions and a papyrus in Egypt on the other side of the world seem to be suggesting that somewhere where the Arabian Peninsula is today is one of these seven hot points of these uh, these cultures that were uh, were the homes of the civilizing heroes of the flood i keep thinking about the people that you describe and we've heard of i forgot the name the vril you probably haven't mm -hmm. heard of that term before yes no melanin whatsoever supposedly they inhabit earth underground and that's where they are and some people even speculate that that's what we see under Antarctica, but that's a that's for another show. That's uh, for another show, <laughs> right? So let me ask you about the serpent because there's three words that appear almost in every ancient book: gold, slavery, and the feathered serpent. Why is the serpent or the snake so venerated by the ancient ones, but demonized by modern civilization? Oh, I think the uh, Catholic Church has a lot to answer for that one. Uh, and I'm not being conspiratorial, as a matter of fact. Uh, anything that was based on earth magic, anything that was based on the natural laws of nature, uh, were demonized because uh, these priests that the church uh, was encountering, uh, I mean, by, by this time, they're basically uh, very rare people. Uh, but they definitely knew something that the church wanted its hands on, and the, uh, they would not divulge the information. And they came back from this uh, long, uh, treatise of people who were part of a, a divine priesthood who knew about the laws of nature and how to manipulate it. And it was a well-kept secret for very good reasons that you don't give that information out to people who have no responsibility and who are who, who show every intent of misusing it against others. So it was a well-protected secret to stop people from abusing the information. And it goes back to these people called the people of the serpent. So whether you see them as the naga of India, or the uh, the dragon lords of China and Japan, uh, or the people of the serpents in Central America or Iberia, um, they basically were, it was their badge of office, and it goes all the way back to the Anunnaki. Now, it, the story really breaks down uh, by, uh, thanks to people like Zechariah Sitchin, who, you know, in, in his first work, which I think was very, very good and a uh, huge foresight, um, after that, it starts getting to that sort of dark 
side of uh, the watchers who were basically misusing humanity and they fornicated with human women. They created the Nephilim, which, by the way, comes from a word meaning Orion in Hebrew. Uh, and these bastard offspring were the real troublemakers. I mean, they killed people for sport and they ate each other. They ate people. And... Um, these fallen watchers, which formed this very small group of the messengers who formed part of the, uh, the inner circle of the Anunnaki, they get all the bad rap and all the attention because, let's face it, as humans, we like a good dark story. But if you just forget that for a second and read the full account that uh, survives in the Sumerian tradition and in the Book of Enoch, you see that the Anunnaki were actually very benevolent people. Uh, they were trying to raise the level of humans. The Watchers were essentially uh, what became the guardian angels in Christianity. And all of these people were basically trying to t show hunter-gatherers how to better themselves. They would interject slowly, which is why they were called Watchers. They couldn't intervene directly. They just suggested that they put ideas into people's heads and let things fall where they may. Uh, so this is where you get that sort of idea that um, the serpent people and the Anunnaki and the Watchers were really dark, evil people from that core group that was then uh, used. And, uh, and now I'm quoting the Babylonians here because they were really annoyed that the Israelites and the Hebrews uh, basically took all of their stories about the flood and all the pre-flood gods and they politicized them for purely religious purposes to show off the, you know, the superiority of Jewish culture. And I'm not being defamatory here, it's a matter of fact. Uh, the Bible shows a huge bias because there were a number of people who have looked at the original stories in the Bible and found actually they're copied from Mesopotamian texts and they've altered the, the locations to people and they've demonized the Watchers uh, and the Anunnaki in order to you know raise the level. Uh, uh, of Jewish tradition, but you know they're not the only ones. So many people in history have done exactly the same thing. Uh, you, you can't just sort of single these people out, uh, and that's where the problems begin. Because when we have reached the historical era, that's the more popular story that we get to hear. It's the biblical version of how these people fell apart, and the fallen angels, and the devil, which, by the way, only shows up three times in the Bible, and uh, most of the time he's actually a pretty helpful chap. Uh, he's actually one of the messengers that goes around putting obstacles in people's way in order for people to learn to overcome these obstacles so they can raise their level of awareness. That essentially was the um, the job of uh, Lucifer, who essentially translates as the bearer of the light. light. Doesn't sound like a very bad person to me. Uh, and enough uh, sc uh, scholars have looked upon this and uh, they've agreed with my position on this that, yes, originally there was a very uh, light story about helpful people helping humanity, which then gets politicized for purely religious reasons. And we're stuck with that. And then, of course, you have ancient aliens that take the whole story a little bit further because, you know, good news rarely makes for good viewership, unfortunately. Um, and again, it's not me on a, uh, just saying this on a pedestal, if you actually look at the evidence that's available and reread these stories, I think you'll find that I'm talking the truth here. Yeah, look at the Egyptians too. I mean, look at Sahih Hawaz. When anybody questions the fact that perhaps it was not the Egyptians who built the pyramids, you know how he becomes very <laughs> outraged. Robust. Uh, exactly. Sakaria uh, Sitchin. I was uh, fortunate to have conducted his last interview before he died. But I always wondered, he's, his last office was located in Rockefeller Center. And we all know that the Rockefellers are the ones who write the curriculum 
for education, for the medical industry, and so on. So it makes you wonder if what he was saying was true, if the Rockefellers would have allowed it. I think there's one very good way to judge that, actually, because at the time, Sitchin was making these outlandish um, statements, uh, and that's cool. I mean, we have to shake things up once in a while. There's nothing wrong with being outlandish. Uh, I mean, I'm usually outlandish in the stuff I write as well. The trick is you have to back it up uh, with evidence. Uh, and if, it's, if there isn't evidence, at least say that it's just an opinion. Uh, and in Zechariah's uh, um, situation, what happened was he was uh, perhaps the only person that could translate Sumerian. Well, a decade later, there were people who actually learned how to read Sumerian, and they went over to his material and said, actually, he's kind of made up a lot of these words in order to basically um, back up his theory. So that's the problem. And that's why I said that his early work, I think, stands up uh, by itself. I think it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it, we should give it a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of merit because it did open up a window into this very unusual world of the Sumerian culture. But later on, I found, now that I know, uh, you know what I'm talking about, because back then I was a fan, you know, I was much younger, um, I began to read this, his stuff knowing what I now know, and, and I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, hmm, some of this stuff just doesn't make any sense. It seems as though he's trying to prop up an industry, and it's very tempting to do that when you become successful. And, and I find that uh, a lot of the stuff that uh, appears in his later material doesn't stand up to scrutiny. So again, uh, I'm saying this kindly because I don't want to throw the baby uh, out with the bathwater. I think that would be really unkind because there are uh, great pieces of information in his book. Books, uh, uh, along with everybody else, but uh, he wasn't right for a substantial amount of the time. You have to take his stuff with a, with a grain of salt. So uh, whether there was a conspiracy at the end or not, uh, well, like all conspiracies, um, and as you joke about this, the lack of evidence is a sure sign that a conspiracy exists. Um, you don't really know. Only the people that are directly involved in the conspiracy really know the truth. Uh, we can only speculate. And, of course, speculation is always good fun as long as it is exactly that, speculation and not fact. Now, we have to take a one and only break. But before that, something that just occurred to me, and I don't mean to mix your work with something else, but it just occurred to me. And I'm curious. I'll, I'll get you answer on the other side. Have you looked into Tartaria and the mud flood? This is coming out from every angle to me, and I want to know if you've looked into that. But answer it when we come back. How can people buy The Missing Lands, Uncovering Earth's Pre-Flood Civilization, and your other books, and learn more about your work, Freddie? Well, they can support the author directly, and you should always support uh, artists directly. Um, InvisibleTemple.com InvisibleTemple.com and FreddieSilva.com. Is that still up? Uh, that's actually my photography site, which oh. is in desperate need of a good um, rehash. Uh, that technology is over 15 years old, and I've got 22,000 photographs of sacred sites that I have to go through eventually to create a coffee table book. And uh, But it's still it's, there's some interesting stuff there. It's definitely worth going to look at, even if just for uh, a bit of fun. Great, folks. Don't go anywhere. This is a fascinating interview. And when we come back, we're going to be just, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I want to go underwater now and look at more. The rabbit hole goes deeper than we thought. Freddie Silva is your special guest today. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. See you in the member section. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. 
Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.